This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared or expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Daniel Dennett. He's one of the foremost philosophers of mind working today to unravel the puzzle of what minds are and what they're for and co-director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University, among other titles. His latest book of many is called From Bacteria to Bach and Back, and it's a sweeping but detailed attempt to demystify how we get from inanimate matter to cathedrals, symphonies, and of course, podcasts. Welcome to Think Again, Dan. I'm glad to be here. Um, can you uh, can you summarize your 413-page extremely comprehensive book in uh, no? I mean, what? How would you describe the central premise of what what you're trying to argue here, which I know gathers decades of work on your part? The central premise, I guess, could be summarized as: if you really want to understand what consciousness is and what it can do, and what a human mind is, you have to see how it got that way. Right. You have to understand what it came from. You have to understand how it got designed because there's simply no question about it. It is just loaded with fabulous design. Ideas are designed, words are designed, theories are designed. Some of it is obviously designed and we know who designed it. We know that, that you know Newton and Leibniz designed calculus. And there's a few other great thinking tools. We know who the authors are, but most of the great thinking tools were not designed by anybody. They were designed by cultural evolution. And cultural evolution can only exist when you have human beings that can spread culture. So first you gotta evolve people. Right. Then you gotta evolve language and the rest of culture. Then you can start having intelligent design, namely small i, small d, intelligent designers. Right. People like Jane Austen, William Shakespeare, and Ada Lovelace, and the other great designers. And you devote a, like a not inconsiderable amount of time to, to talking about how this word design, you're comfortable with it in the context of evolution as well, not just in terms of yeah. intelligent design, but there's unintelligent design in the sense of things. Yeah. Yeah, know, I, yes, I think there, there are some of my uh, friends and colleagues in evolution who deplore I hope they'll give it up, and I think I've done a sufficient <laughs> defense, who deplore my use of design talk because I think I'm giving too big a, a sop to the intelligent design, capital I, capital D gang, but not at all. I think the wise way to think about nature is don't deny the design of nature. It's fantastic. It's just breathtakingly clever. Right. As Francis Crick once 
said, Orgel's second rule, evolution is cleverer than you are. And so it is. Fabulous products, brilliantly designed right. by a process which isn't brilliant at all, which has no foresight, no intention, no consciousness, no goals. And yet, this cranking, mechanical, motiveless process, over time, generates better and better and better and better and better and better things for all kinds of functions. And yeah. what we are, as we sit here, you sit there and there's more than a trillion cells. More than a trillion. Right. Each one of those is just jam-packed with well-designed little elements. Stunning. The whole thing together is designed to perform all sorts of functions. Yeah. And one of the real amazing things is that nine out of ten of the cells in your clothes right now right. are not human cells. They are symbiont visitors. They are living <laughs> in you the way the way some birds live in cliff faces, and uh, they, they're they're hitchhikers. Right. So there's all of this design, whole communities of designed entities, made of designed entities, made of designed entities. Yeah. Robots made of robots made of robots made of robots. That's the hard bit, though, for you know the average person, I guess, to wrap their mind around the the the, the which you call, I think, Darwin's strange inversion, the yeah. the way that. Like how something that can be called design can emerge from the random banging against each other of things and then yeah. ultimately, like, the, I, I, it was useful to me, like, you talked about inanimate objects in the initial sort of emptiness, <laughs> um, uh, banging against each other and, 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 and stability being the first kind of principle of this kind of design. What, yeah. what combinations persist, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before there was a differential replication or reproduction, there was differential persistence. Right. Some things just hung around for longer than others. And hanging around for longer than other things is, at least gives you the opportunity to pick up something new, a new, a new scratch on the surface, a new bump, a right. new something. And 99 times out of 100, it won't do you any good if what you want to do is hang around longer. But sometimes it does. Right. And so it goes. That isn't yet natural selection. It's Darwin-esque. It has some of the features of natural selection, and we gradually get from this churning stew of lifeless cycles, we get the accumulation of things that happen to eventually to be capable actually of making copies of themselves. Right. Right. And then we're off to the races. <laughs> and so thinking through then, like, I mean, having sort of digested to whatever extent I was able to from reading your book, that your explanation of what is going on with human minds and what distinguishes them from those of other creatures, I came up with a kind of tweak to uh, Descartes' famous formulation, cogitur ergo sum, which I can't do in Latin, but I want to run it by you and you tell me how close it is to what you're saying. I explain myself to others and therefore I think that I am. Is that sort of on the right track? It is, it is <laughs> um, because if there weren't others, right. the conditions for human consciousness, the preconditions for human consciousness wouldn't really exist. Right. Part of human consciousness is distinguishing yourself from others. This, 
not just distinguishing yourself from that tree over there or the rock or the river, right. but distinguishing yourself from other agents, whether it's the bear that might eat you or the uh, rabbit that might be your supper or the person who might be able to give you the answer to a question you need answering. And right. so the exchange of information and the exploitation of information is what life is all about. Right. And what's happened is that in one species, we have carried this to sort of recursively high degrees, where we now, as the saying goes, anything you can do, I can do meta. <laughs> um, we can think about our thinking, and we can think about thinking about our thinking, and we can have thinking tools that help us think about our thinking tools, and so forth. Yeah. And if we didn't have all those tools, the, our capacity to reflect indefinitely is a very special capacity. And it's not one that just comes with being a sentient organism. And you're not ready, you're gonna, you've upset some dolphin fanciers, no doubt. Like, you're not ready to concede that, it seems, or, or you're just not sure well, with respect as, as, to, say, dolphins. As, as one <laughs> dolphin researcher once put it, I can't remember who, uh, yes, dolphins may be incredibly intelligent, and if so, they're doing a brilliant job of hiding it from us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what have they built, I guess? Well, well not only something. that, but, <laughs> okay. but I, I, I do think it's remarkable, a sort of sympathetic bias built into many people's opinions of dolphins, that they are very happy that there are dedicated people in scuba gear who are going out helping the dolphins get out of the tuna nets. Right. And you think, wait a minute. Tunas, uh, dolphins are great leapers. The tuna net, <laughs> it's child's play to leap out. Are they so stupid they can't see how to leap out of a tuna net? It's not asking them to ride a bicycle or something like that. Right. They're, they're so, come on. How, <laughs> how intelligent is a dolphin if it has to have a human being in a scuba right. gear help it do something which is one of its best natural abilities anyway? Yeah. Well, over time, it may be, I mean, these human help, it, 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 may, it may save the dolphins' energy to, uh, to rely on these human helpers to just rescue them. Well, sure, <laughs> sure. That's always a possibility, too. They become dependent on a, a, a species. This is like, it's like a seeing-eye dog. We have a, a dolphin survive because they have companion animals, mainly human beings, who help them help them over the fences. Yeah, yeah, we're sort of pets of the dolphins, perhaps. That's yeah. interesting. Um, you have an interesting, uh, there's an interesting quote in the beginning of the book about mystery lovers. You talk about how you, you constantly run into resistance to explanation, biological explanations yeah. of human consciousness yeah, from, yeah. from mystery lovers. And yeah. I, I want to dig into that a little bit, right? Because yeah. like, so I, I guess I, I sort of consider myself a myst mystery lover in the sense that I, I skew to the humanities and arts side of things, and I'm interested in the kind of beauty and complexity of things for their own sake, which doesn't mean demystification is a problem necessarily, but, but I guess there's this paranoia that you're going to like yeah. show everybody the meat inside Shakespeare, and then Shakespeare's not going to be, you know... No, I think you've put it very well. I think, I think that... <laughs> That fear, <laughs> that concern that you express is very widespread and in some ways completely reasonable. Look at stage magic, which is a favorite phenomenon topic sure. of mine. And I love talking with ma magicians <laughs> and learning from them. They have a lot to teach us. And 
every magician will tell you that, fortunately for them, there's a lot of people they really don't want to know how a trick is done. Okay. They <laughs> right. don't spoil it for me. And in a one sense they're right, because very often if you do learn how a magic trick is done, there is something deflating about it. You mean that's how it's done? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I thought it was something really cool when in fact it was just an incredible amount of drudgery that set the thing up so that it would work. We really don't want well, let me uh, let me try sure. an example. Um, Oscar Wilde was a famous wit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what if we learned that Oscar Wilde lay in bed every night thinking up retorts, reposts, honing them, thinking of them for hours on end, just right. practicing, 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 thinking, well, suppose somebody asked me a question about this. Let's see if I could turn the conversation now. And so that every morning he wakes up and he's got a dozen new brilliant bomo all <laughs> set to fly, you know, without skipping a beat, as one says. Right. Well, it would sort of diminish, in some people's eyes, it would diminish our sense of his wit to learn that there was a whole lot of really hard work that went into it. Yeah. But it would still be a great witticism. Sure. The thing is, we, love a we good want story. it to be yeah. effortless. Yeah. Well, and we love a good because, story. We're not above rewriting stories yeah. to love them better. But, but, <laughs> but um, we have the ideal of the inspired genius right. who, you know, just hand her the brush and she goes up to the canvas and kazing, 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 and there it is. It's a masterpiece. Right. Just like that. And it's just divine inspiration. Well, there are people who can do incredible drawing, for instance, artists that are to take my breath away, and one of the things that takes my breath away is how fast they work. Mm. And there's some people that are just on all the time. I right. had the pleasure of spending some time in the company of Robin Williams. Oh my God! And yeah. he he was just never off. And you know, it, it was he was on stage as near as I could tell every every waking moment and funny almost the, the entire time. But most Creative work is not like that. That's right. And it doesn't have to be like that. And there's people that are just as funny as Robin Williams who do a lot of drudgery. That brings us to the idea of user illusion that's really interesting in your book. And I, I wasn't familiar with this term before, uh, but for the audience, like the example you initially give is from computers, the uh, desktop folder that we put our documents into is not a folder, nor are our documents documents, but we treat them as if they were, and they make sounds like they are, and so on. And much of the, like our lived experience, you, as you describe it, is a user illusion in the sense that we, we live in this, like the world as we live it, but we don't see the billions and billions yes, of Yes, thank goodness. We'd, we'd, we'd go crazy if we saw yeah. all the complexity. Yeah, yeah, and so I wondered, but I wondered for you personally, having studied this stuff for, you know, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years, whatever, um, do you find that, that the world as is derezzes, like in medias res for you, like when you're trying to coo over a baby, do you suddenly flash to the biological processes that are going, you know? No, <laughs> of course not. And I, and I 
You know, I don't find myself <laughs> musing on the biomechanics of ejaculation when I'm making <laughs> love, you know? I mean, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, there's a time and a place for everything. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough, fair <laughs> enough. Um, okay, and the last thing I wanted to ask you about before we get to the surprise videos, um, my eyes lit up at the, the, toward the end of your book. Um, you're talking about some of the inherent dangers. People are very paranoid about artificial yeah. intelligence, yeah. right? And some very intelligent people are afraid of it as well. Nick Bostrom of Oxford and, you know, Elon Musk and so on. You are, you're skeptical that we're going to, like, ramp up anytime soon to, like, real artificial intelligence. We could spend a long time talking about what real means. But the danger, as you see it, is outsourcing our competencies to things like Alexa came to mind, uh, the Amazon AI assistant, that like we don't understand how they work and we, we think they know more than they do. Like, can you talk a little yeah, bit about yeah, that danger? I think, yeah. yeah, I think that um, some people like to paint concern about the singularity, the time when we have super AI that, that then enslaves us. They think that's a, it's prudent to start worrying now before it's too late. I think on the other, on the contrary, it's imprudent because it draws our attention to a very distant, possible in principle, but very, very distant danger and away from very real dangers that are here right now right. that are much more serious and can do much more harm. And that's what, that's what particularly I dislike about the fantasies about the singularity is they're saying, Look out for the possibility of a volcano erupting in downtown New York when there are more serious things to worry about which might happen tomorrow. Specifically, so like, are you, do you think uh, driverless cars is, an, is a good example of something to which we might too soon outsource our yeah. competency it to all drive? Depend, it all depends on how we do it. Both design philosophies are now being executed okay. by different companies. Right. One of them takes its cue from something that the, the designers of automatic pilots on airplanes have learned, is that it's better to keep the pilot in the loop and let the pilot land with assistance rather than, instead of being a chauffeur, be a guide and, and right. a safety net. Because then the human being, A, can improve in skill right. and can maintain control and can remain interested. <laughs> and so there are... Some car companies are developing cars where they're not going to be completely driverless. Right. They're going to be assisting the driver, but assisting the driver so much as to cut way, way, way down on accidents. And this is a way of actually uh, enhancing the ability of your average driver. People all think they're good drivers and they aren't because you will learn from a very good example, but you will still be learning. The, and and right. you'll be paying attention and Right. You will be responsible. Yeah, and I imagine there's going to be tremendous commercial pressure on at least some companies to to eliminate that human element because people are going to want to sit. They're on going to want to sit and, and do a do, do a crossword puzzle, yeah. and read a book, look at Facebook. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and <laughs> and but then just recognize that that's there's a price you pay for that. Mm -hmm. It may not be worth worth it. I think much more. Well, much more interesting to me as a philosopher is we've got these AI technologies that are developing fantastically right now. All right. these 
uh, you know, deep learning of uh, various sorts. Like Watson and yeah, yeah. others. And uh, uh, reinforcement learning and neural nets and Bayesian networks and all the rest of this. These are a new category of thing. They are a, sort of a black box. You stuff in a whole lot of data, it gives you an answer, and you don't know how it got the answer. It can't tell you, but you have very good reason to believe it's true. So those processes so sort of, are not retraceable? You can't like... Some of them are, some of them aren't. A uh -huh, lot of them you uh -huh. really can't. They're really quite inscrutable. Uh -huh. But although they're inscrutable, you can even sometimes prove mathematically that they're very, very, very likely to be right. Right. So they're more reliable than any human on the same task, but they can't tell you how they did it. And now the question is, do you care? And we already have examples of this where the answer is probably no, we don't care. When I wrote uh, A Darwin's Dangerous Idea, sequencing a gene was really a slow, cumbersome job, and it was done with the old gel electrophoresis, and this was a very expensive thing to figure out what some gene's actual sequence was. Right. Now, it's like instant cake mix. You got this little machine in your lab, you put your your reagents in, you, you put your sample in, you push the button, and out comes the the sequencing. The PCR is all done automatically, and it's like a TV dinner. Right. It just <laughs> pops out with the answer. Right. Now, the, the people who are using it don't have to do all that really hard work, and they get the answer. And they know, without knowing the details, right. How do they know it works? They know it works because there's a marketplace and the people who can judge say, it's worth paying the extra <laughs> $500,000 to get unit A because it's not only faster, but it's more accurate. We, I mean, so, so here we have these new epistemological devices. We don't have to understand how they work. Right. But the real danger is putting too much faith in them. And losing our own competence while we do it. I mean, if, if history is any guide, we, we will. We will blithely put our faith in them and... Become completely dependent <laughs> yes. on them. And then, when they break, we will panic. Or when my, this, is my, this is my great mm. fear. My mm -hmm. great fear is a lot of people think that the Internet is going to go down. It's, just a, it's not a matter of if, it's a question of when. Like temporarily or like, Temporarily, yeah. but if it goes down for, let's say, 48 hours. Yeah, havoc. Because <laughs> it won't just be the internet. Yeah. It'll be the power grid, the cell phones, the radio, television. We'll be plunged into electronic darkness, except for a few ham radio operators who have <laughs> generators. We'll be plunged back into the 19th century. Mm. Well. Life goes on just fine. I mean, a lot of people around the world already, they live in the 19th century and they know how to do it. And they, you know, they scoop their water out of the well and they cook their food over a bunch of wood sticks and so forth. They know how to make a fire and so right. forth. But most of us don't. And most of us have become so dependent on the technology that we're really helpless without right. it. Right. And people are going to freak out. More damage will be done in those 48 hours by the panicky overreactions of people mm. than by anything else. So I am brainstorming with people quite intensively about how 
to encourage people around the world, but mainly in the in the West, in, in, say in the United States, let's start where we are, to form bottom-up, local, impromptu networks of people who are sort of a lifeboat, a community lifeboat, who yeah. know who know where the generators are, know who has some fuel, know who needs medicine, where there's fresh water, and where do you get your news from? Who knows how to run an old-fashioned mimeograph machine and to put flyers up all over town explaining what's going on? Right. Going, using 19th century technology, or 20th century technology, to calm people down and give them a sense that it's all right, hang on. Interesting. There's people here who know. If we can create these islands of calm, we can absorb that panic. When I was a scuba diver, when I first was trained and certified, right. my instructor impressed me for the rest of my life with the lesson that your great enemy when you're scuba diving is panic. Mm -hmm. Because if panic hits you, <laughs> you will do something crazy. You'll kill your best friend by grabbing the regulator out of his or her mouth. A panicky scuba diver is just a crazy, bizarre person. Right, and beginning with maybe surfacing and giving yourself the bends, I guess. Not just the bends, giving, you're killing yourself <laughs> with, with an air embolism. It's much more likely what okay. happens. And so what we want to create all over the world is panic absorbers. Hmm. Here's what a panic absorber is. It is in everybody's head. It's a little app that has to be installed in their head. And when the internet goes down, not the first thing they think of, but the second thing they think of is, let's see, now where was that lifeboat? Where, who, where do I go? I know there's somebody right locally. I can walk to the place where I can get some help. And if everybody thinks that, then we're safe. You're sort of giving them a, phys a physical version of what the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy could do, you know, in, in Douglas Adams' wonderful books, which had Don't Panic stamped on it right on the cover. Like, whatever situation you may find yourself in in the universe, you know. Oh, I'd forgotten that. The answer yeah. is in here, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, <laughs> I think we've invented lots of technologies to protect us from our own bad ideas. Hmm. For instance, in big die presses and you know pressing out auto body parts right this giant form comes down and chunk and turns that piece of, of sheet steel into a, a into a fender or something right and then there's a worker who has to take that one out and put another piece in okay well uh, the the workers who have to stick their hands in there have handcuffs on and the handcuffs are tied to chains which are tied to levers and if they get careless and leave their hands in there, the levers are such that when the thing comes down, <laughs> the levers pull their arms out of the way. Okay. So these people are in chains, but thank goodness for the for chains. For their own good, yeah. For their own good. So what, what we want to do is to think of lots of little habits of thinking, mm -hmm. which could be a little bit obsessive, doesn't matter, but just so that when panic starts to come in, you know what to do. Yeah. There was a movie, I can't remember which movie it was, Richard Dreyfuss, who 
something bad happens and he's running through the house yelling, call 911, call 911, <laughs> call 911. You know, he's got that. But that won't work because nobody will answer on 911. Right. So I want to replace call 911 with something else and it's going to be local and old fashioned. I could, I could go on talking about that for the rest of the day, but I think what, in the interest of time, let us now go to the surprise video clips that we have and see uh -huh. where, uh, where that's going to take us. Okay. Okay, this is Andrew Keen talking about the societal effects of the internet. The contemporary internet is based on a fundamental lie. We all are told that it's social. We're all told that it allows connectivity, allows us to create community. But the reverse is actually true. It's atomizing us. It's not creating real community. It's actually separating us from people of different opinions, of different cultures. It's increasingly an echo chamber effect where we're only ever connected with people who agree with us in the first place. But even more troubling, these social networks aren't really social. They're platforms for the self. They're, plaps for, they're platforms for us to build brands. The clearest manifestation of this is our obsession with the selfie. The selfie becomes the cultural form of the internet. Wherever we go, we picture ourselves in front of mausoleums, in front, as they say in the book, in front of people committing suicide, at Auschwitz, at every imaginable place. In spite of all the bad taste associated with it, we are, in our minds at least, our deluded minds, the center of our universe. I argue again in terms of progress that we've gone back to a, a pre-Copernican understanding of the universe where everything revolves around us. There's nothing social about that. Well, I think he's basically right. The echo chamber that he talks about, the, the silo, in which we find ourselves, the fact that we largely end up talking to, communicating with, interacting with people who share our beliefs. It's a very potent effect. Right. It's not new. It's been happening for centuries. It's just newly enhanced. I mean, it's tribalism, I guess, right? I well, mean, it's... Sort of, right? I mean, which is uh, old. The artists and writers that flocked to Paris in the 1920s. Okay. Uh, to learn from to, each other. To yeah. learn from each other and to find a gang that they really could hang out with. That was a, you know, a very robust example of the phenomenon. And it wasn't as wonderful as people thought it was. You know? uh, it never is. So I think he's right about that. But I think that the transparency, this is just one aspect of the new transparency electronic transparency, which with these new media, the social media, but also the, the internet in general and cell phones and transistor radios, right. all of the electronic communications technology of the last 50 years, last 100 years, it's shrunk distances, as one says. And it means that everybody can know just about anything they want to about something really far away. They can call an old friend in Beijing Right. And talk to that old friend as if the person were in the next room. You can do that. And we haven't begun to deal with the implications of that. One of my most concerning implications is that we have lost one of the great excuses of all times. Mm. Ignorance. <laughs> when 
a hundred years ago, if people were starving in Africa or if there was a, you know, a volcano that was threatening thousands in Sumatra or wherever, right. we could live our lives blissfully ignorant of that. And we didn't have to worry about whether we should drop everything and go help. We didn't know about it. Right. We couldn't know about it. But now we, we have, can know about right. unimaginable thousands of things that we can do right now. You and I, right now, could stop what we're doing. We could get out our credit cards and we could <laughs> donate money to Oxfam or 75,000 other charities right. and know we were doing something good. Right, but, but but we're not doing but it. But we don't, yeah. And and I mean, you know, some of some people do, I guess, some of that to some extent. But but I guess the phenomenon he's talking about is that given all of those tools, we choose consciously or unconsciously or semi-consciously or whatever to restore ignorance by isolating ourselves within kind of reflecting pools. You know, and, like, and my point is that there's a sense in which that's a completely understandable and excusable human desire. <laughs> We're all, quite frankly, oppressed by our own power. Uh -huh. There are too many things we can do. If there's one thing philosophers agree on, right. there's hardly anything, it's that ought implies can. Ought implies can, okay. That is, if you can't do it, you're not obliged to do it, obviously. Right. It's as simple as that. The thing is that can has exploded. Can do. There's things we can do today that we couldn't do 10 years ago, and thousands and thousands of things that we can do today that we couldn't do 100 years ago. It's very anxiety-provoking. And yeah. so all of a sudden, we become eligible for all these oughts. Mm. We all ought to become vegetarians, and we all ought to devote the next 12 hours of the day to getting on the internet and drumming up support for the protest rally and we all ought to do 25,000 other things <laughs> which we could do right. they're not hard but we can't do we, all of them and we can't we can't do all of them and we don't know how to choose right and so we're in a sort of funk of having too much power yeah so it sends people scurrying for what's simple and what's familiar and giving up on being socially responsible people decide, oh, there's too many responsibilities. I'm just going to be a selfish bastard and go off and play with my friends and let the world go to hell. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, that's, a, that's, if you say, oh, I never feel that way, I tend not to believe you. I think it's the most natural, maybe selfish, maybe craven, but it's the most natural reaction. We just block our ears and close our eyes and say, enough, enough, enough. I want to have fun for a little while. I'm not going to be a social do-gooder my every waking hour. I mean, even take the extreme case where somebody decides to devote their life to starving orphans somewhere. Yeah. That's, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of suffering people that the, whose needs they are choosing not to address, right? The indeed, <laughs> indeed. And, and of course, there are, this is an arms race. So we have also organizations and individuals who are going around basically advertising the strategy, don't quit your job on the stock market. Right. Don't go off to the jungle and give shots to natives that don't have good health care. Stay in the stock market, make a ton of money, and devote all of it. 
and send all of it to the people who are out there in the field. Yeah. You know, you do your do your good deeds vicariously. Peter by, Singer was talking about that, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. A lot of people have talked about it. Get, <laughs> huh. get rich and and then give your money away. Which, you know, the the yeah, the the only problem potentially, I mean, the obvious potential problem with that is that by the time you're rich, you might no longer want to give your money away, which is There is that problem. Oh, that that's changing. I mean, I think this is actually a pretty interesting development that we have all these young right. billionaires. Zuckerberg and... And the fact is, a surprising number of them are actually doing this. And if enough of them do it, it will be very bad for them not to do it. Yes. Do we have... Uh, can we take 10 minutes and do one more and then call it a, yeah. call yeah. It a day? Okay, cool. So this is... Back to artificial intelligence, and this is Ben Gertzel. Okay. Um, he's a he's an AI uh, yeah. programmer. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm for the. I audience. don't know him, but 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 I know the, enough about the field, so I want to see what. Right. Okay. And this is called AI will surpass human ability before the century is over. The mathematician I. J. Good, back in the mid 1960s introduced what he called the intelligence explosion, which in essence was the same as the concept that Werner Vinge later introduced and Ray Kurzweil adopted and called the technological singularity. What I.J. Good said was the first intelligent machine will be the last invention that humanity needs to make. Now, in the 1960s, the difference between narrow AI and AGI wasn't that clear, and I.J. Good wasn't thinking about a system like AlphaGo that could beat Go but couldn't walk down the street or add 5 plus 5. In the modern vernacular, what we can say is the first human-level AGI, the first human-level artificial general intelligence, will be the last invention that humanity needs to make. And the reason for that is once you get a human-level AGI, you can teach this human-level AGI math and programming and AI theory and cognitive science and neuroscience. This human-level AGI can then reprogram itself and it can modify its own mind and it can make itself into a yet smarter machine. It can make 10,000 copies of itself, some of which are much more intelligent than the original. And once the first human-level AGI has created the second one, which is smarter than itself, well, that second one will be even better at AI programming and hardware design and cognitive science and so forth, and will be able to create the third human-level AGI, which by now will be well beyond human-level. So it seems that it's going to be a laborious path to get to the first human-level AGI. I don't think it'll take centuries from now, but it may be decades rather than years. On the other hand, once you get to a human-level AGI, I think you may see what some futurists have called a hard takeoff, where you see the intelligence increase literally day by day as the AI system rewrites its own mind. And this, it's a bit frightening, but it's also incredibly exciting. And there's a lot of work to get to the point where intelligence explodes in the sense of a hard takeoff. But I, I do think it's reasonably probable we can get there in my lifetime, which is, which is rather exciting.
Is there a cognitive competence which if somebody could come to you and say, you know, Dan, I've put the ability to do this incredible thing that your brain currently can't do onto this thing which I can plug into you without damaging your brain or whatever in any demonstrable way, would, what would that, like, which one of those would you accept? Would you do it? You know, what, what competence would you, you know, or would you just reject it categorically? Like, I think it's conceivable to have a, a technology where without ever going to the trouble of learning Chinese, I could go to China and just start speaking English and it would translate whatever I said into Chinese and, yes. and s tell it to the Chinese people there. And they would answer and it would translate that into English. So I'd never have to learn Chinese, but could, I could have intimate personal discussions on any topic at all. That's a fantasy that is, <laughs> I think, not going to be achievable in the near future, although second-rate versions of it are right around the corner. Sure. But they're going to be second-rate. Right. And I think that the fantasy of superintelligence, yeah. super AGI, super artificial general intelligence, it's one of those simplifications that leaves out some important dimensions which turn it from plausible into wildly implausible. Okay. Wildly implausible. It's a little bit like someone back in uh, you know 1900 saying, "Well, you know, now we're we're getting these new horseless carriages, and uh, I can see the speed is we're already up to 25 miles an hour, and uh, I can see uh, this is going to increase just exponentially. And by the beginning of the 21st century." People are going to be going all over the country, all over the world, at 65,000 miles an hour. No. No, they're not. Right. And for very good reasons. There's a sort of simple-minded sense of more is better, and we know what more means when it's intelligent. Right. And I think we already know that's false. What we want is reliability and speed of processing, but mainly reliability, and cheap. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at, look at the gene sequencers. Now, that's a solved problem now. We've got these little boxes that can, right. uh, you know, you can, you can pay small amounts of money and get your genome sequenced. That's orders of magnitude faster, cheaper, better than what could be done by the smartest biochemists in the world uh, not 50 years ago. Now. Does it have AGI? No. Right. Is there any reason to build it in? No. The I mean, thing is, I don't think there will be any reason. First of all, the task of making the imagined humanoid AGI mm. is being, I think, underestimated by orders of magnitude. You take Watson. Sure. All right. So Watson can do pretty good, well on Jeopardy. What would it take to make Watson so that it could have a decent conversation on any topic? Right. Would it be twice as big? No, it would be 5,000 times as big, and Watson already uses more energy than a city. <laughs> so come on, why are we going to do this? I, We're not going to do it. I'm, I, and, I, I and, think, uh, I guess what they're arguing, so here's where I feel at a loss, right? Because this guy believes he's created an architecture yeah. for maybe not a, like, 
at least the blueprint toward some kind of artificial general intelligence yeah. that he's trying to get people to design through a wiki like called OpenCog, which, you know, and he doesn't, it might take 20 years, 30 years, whatever. But he, yeah. but I don't know what he knows about his, his field. Now, he doesn't know what you know about the human mind, but like, I guess what he's proposing and what these people are proposing is that at some point you get this sort of quasi-evolutionary process wherein the machines are just kind of churning out. It's not really evolutionary, I guess. It's, it's top well, down I think he, slash bottom well, up. Well, know. who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that It just AI, seems implausible to you. <laughs> the history of AI, yeah. which I, A, adore, and B, have sort of lived through most of it, has been a history of hype. <laughs> and apparently, the next generation just doesn't learn. Yeah. They, they want to hype it. And good old-fashioned AI was hyped. Connectionism was hyped. Bayesian networks are being hyped. Right. Deep learning is being hyped. These are all major improvements. But the extrapolation to hmm. artificial general intelligence, is it possible in principle? Sure. It's also possible in principle to build a uh, galaxy-sized replica of the Statue of Liberty in another galaxy. <laughs> right, right. Are we going to do it? No. And Not because it's scientifically impossible, but because that would be the stupidest thing to spend all our time and energy on I can think of. Assuming it's, yeah, as expensive and massive as what you're describing, you yeah. know, saying it would have to be. I mean, if it's something people can design via a wiki, then they're going to do it because they want to, you know. But yeah, but there's, the trouble is there's all sorts of things you can design by a wiki which will actually subvert <laughs> this process. <laughs> I got you. So um, I think uh, we should be cautious. But uh, I think this is a, a classic case of what Sidney Brenner calls Occam's broom. Okay. Which is what you use to sweep inconvenient facts under the rug. And this all sounds very plausible because he's not mentioning all the things that he's not mentioning, which are the ones that will, that will take away this accelerating curve mm -hmm. that he sees. Well, well, we'll see, I suppose, but my money's on, on your uh, assessment, so I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll well, be cautious. I may, <laughs> I may be wrong. I'm a tremendous optimist. <laughs> All right. Well, Dan Dennett, thank you so much for being on my show. And um, the new book is called From Bacteria to Bach and Back. And remind me of the subtitle? The Evolution of Minds. The Evolution of Minds. It's, it's a wonderful comprehensive and fascinating book. Thanks so much for being on today. Delighted. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. That was quite a book to get through, but, uh, but it was worth every second. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. I've been hearing from many uh, listeners. I mean, I would say that uh, two to three people are writing me a week, which which feels like a lot, and people are writing really nice, personalized messages, and I'm responding to all of them. So, I mean, if it got up to 100 a week, I don't know if I'd be able to do that anymore, but I, I do my best. I really enjoy hearing from you. Um, I'm at jason at bigthink.com or jgots, J-G-O-T-S, on Twitter. 
so please uh, feel free to get in touch. And uh, if you haven't done it or if you're new to the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate or review us on iTunes or wherever you listen. That makes a big difference in discoverability, uh, and there's a lot of podcasts out there. So the more people know about us, the better. Uh, We've got great show coming up for you next week. Lots of varied and interesting guests in the coming weeks, and I hope you can join us. See you then.